Good morning. So this is our third party here this weekend. <laughs> I'm really excited you're here. Uh, we're going to start with the Bible study and then we'll do our water baptisms. This is our freedom teaching series for freedom Christ has set us free. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. We're going to compare religion versus the gospel. One of the biggest obstacles in the way of people coming to Christianity is that they think they already know what it's all about. And I'm convinced that often people who reject Christianity are not rejecting true biblical Christianity, uh, but they're rejecting what they think it is or maybe a figment of their imagination or a misconception that they have about Christianity. They are rejecting what I would reject, religion. And they're not rejecting really truly the gospel because maybe they don't understand it. It wasn't explained to them. And I find it interesting here in America today that oftentimes not only do non-Christians not understand the gospel or the difference between religion and the gospel, uh, Christians don't understand it. Christians and non-Christians alike don't really understand it. So I hope today you begin to maybe get a glimpse into the difference between religion and the gospel. In fact, in our text, it gives us two contrasts between religion and the gospel. The first one between religion and the gospel is what it looks like in our relationship with God. That's verses 8 through 11. That's what we'll be reading in a minute. And then it gives us the second contrast between religion and the gospel, and that is as it looks, what it looks like in our relationship with others. So first in our relationship with God and then our relationship with others, this contrast between religion and the gospel, and that's found, the second one is found in verses 12 through 20. So why does this matter? Does it, does it matter? Does it really matter that you know the difference between uh, religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Tremendously. I mean, this is really, really important in what we're going to talk about here today. You need to know the difference. And in fact, as Paul sees the Galatians failing to do this, to know the difference between religion and the gospel, it says in verse 11 that he's afraid. He is afraid for them, verse 11 of our text, and then he's perplexed about them, verse 20. He's afraid and he's perplexed. Well, why would he be afraid and perplexed? Because... Um, heaven and hell, life or death, not just for this life, but the life to come, hangs in the balance. And your understanding of those two and making sure that you, you have entered into this relationship with God through the gospel and what that entails and what that's all about. So before... Uh, before we look at this text and unpack these notes, kind of walk through these notes, let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me once again? And let's ask for God's help to understand this text and apply it to our lives. Father God, you, you are not only transcendent, but you are imminent. You are powerful, but also personal. You created us for relationship with you as objects of your perfect love. We pray that through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would open blind eyes and deaf ears to this most amazing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep us from falling prey to worshiping you with our lips and having hearts that are far from you, just kind of going through the motions without any emotion. Help us not to be guilty of religious ritual and routine, but to be overtaken by the gospel as we grow in our personal, intimate relationship with you, our glorious and beautiful God, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Now, we begin reading verse 8. We'll kind of walk through it slowly. I'll explain some of it. 
chapter 4 of Galatians. Formerly, when you did not know God, so this is the BC days, before Christ days, he says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So paganism was very popular during this time, as it is in our time, and we'll explain what that means. Look at verse 9. It's it's simply just an absolutely breathtaking, beautiful verse. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, then it's almost like he says, oh, 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 wait, rather to be known by God. Better yet, most importantly, it wasn't that you found God. God found you. He pursued you. He loves you. He came after you. That's the point here. He knows you. And because he knows you, he made himself known to you, and you came into this relationship with him. Really an amazing verse. But notice what's happening here. He's saying, but how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be? be once more. So it's almost as if, so, so he defines what they were before Christ, and now that they've come to Christ, it's almost as if he's saying, hey, you're kind of going back to this same kind of paganism. It's pretty stunning what he's saying and what he's accusing them of here, and I think it's important for us to understand it, and we'll kind of get to it in our notes and unpack it. And, and he just defines what this is, this kind of this religion. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, exclamation mark, Verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I told you the gospel. You guys are walking away from an understanding of the gospel. Now, that has to do with our relationship with God. We're going to look at this contrast between uh, religion and the gospel as, our, as it relates to our relationship with God. Now, the next part, verses, 20, or verses 12 through 20, talk about our relationship with others. And this is what he says, brothers, I entreat you. He's pleading with them. Become as I am, so follow me and follow my example as I follow Christ. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as as Christ Jesus. So they were very open and receptive to him. So he's got this ailment, and he uses this ailment as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them. They're very receptive and open to them, but now their heart is changing because these false teachers have infiltrated their ranks there in these churches in Galatia where Paul has planted, and and these false teachers are turning their hearts away from the gospel of grace and away from Paul. Paul, verse 15, says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, many believe, remember when Paul talks about in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about the thorn in the flesh. Many believe that the thorn in the flesh was actually some kind of eye condition. Nobody really knows, but I guess it's good speculation and it's based on, on this, that he had some sort of eye condition that they would gouge out their eyes to give him Uh, new eyes, and verse 16, he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So their hearts are are, are changing. They're not as open and receptive to him anymore because of their unbelief, their false belief, actually. Verse 17, they make much of you. He's talking about the false teachers now. They make much of you, but for no, no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're kissing up to you, so you'll kiss up to them. They're flattering you so that you'll flatter them. No church would ever do that. 
No Christian would ever do that. Yet he's actually accusing this, this, this church, these churches, this, this belief system that these false teachers are conveying. They, yeah, they're guilty of that. They're kissing up to you, so you'll kiss up to them. And uh, he says, it is always good to be made much of. It's good that people encourage you for a good purpose, that as long as you're heading in a good direction, you want people to encourage you. And then he says, and not only when I am present with you. He's actually talking about what motivates you. The motivation he's talking about here is that it's not, uh, not extrinsic motivation. It's the gun to the head. It's the pride and fear kind of motivation. He's actually talking about a much deeper motivation as we will talk about. There's ways to motivate people that won't last. There's another way to motivate people that will last. And we'll, we'll get into that and we'll talk a little bit about that. But look at verse 19. You can really see his heart here. It's my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I know the anguish of childbirth. No. I was in that room with my wife after 12 hours that she was in labor. I don't know it like she knows it, but I know it because after about 12 hours, I said something I shouldn't have said. I said, are you, you having some discomfort? And she looked at me with this homicidal look. <laughs> she wanted to kill me. And what's fascinating about that, I mean, she was certainly in, in, uh, in the anguish of childbirth. And uh, he's in the anguish of childbirth until Christ has formed us. All of us really know what that, what that means. We've seen, we've seen loved ones, we've seen friends go south, and it just has broken our heart. And we've just gone, oh, God, help them, rescue them, come after them. And our heart breaks. Some of us have wayward kids that aren't serving the Lord, and it breaks our hearts. And so that's, that's that verse. He's just, he longs for them, that Christ would be formed in them, that they would know Christ. And then verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, let's, let's walk through this, religion versus gospel. First of all, what it looks like in our relationship with God, verses 8 through 11, number one on your notes. Religion is about being your own Savior and Lord. This is what he's talking about here. So religion is about being your own Savior and Lord. Verse 8, he says, before they knew God, they were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. And then verse 9, it's fascinating how he ties these together. And now that you know God, you are turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. He uses that same phrase. I don't know if you remember last week when we went to the text. He uses that same phrase in verse 3. So what is that? Weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. And he's comparing it to their life before Christ. He says, you're kind of returning back to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the word, world. Well, paganism is, is a belief that behind every single basic element of creation, earth, wind, fire, no, not the 70s rock band, but earth, wind, fire, sun, sea, sun, moon. So behind every single basic element of creation was a God. So for instance, uh, farmers would try to appease the agriculture or weather God. Make sense? I mean, this is very common in these days. And sailors would, would pray to the sea God. Uh, people wanting kids would pray to the fertility God. What would merchants pray to? What do you think? <laughs> 
Maybe the Visa, MasterCard, uh, American Express God, I don't know, the money God. And so they believed there was a God. I, was, I used to jokingly, when I was on the fire department, I was on an adaptive response unit out of Station 10. We go all, all over the city, even into other cities, and cover uh, for those areas. And we knew where all the racquetball courts were. So we'd play racquetball. And so from time to time, just jokingly, I would, when I played racquetball quite well, I would say, hmm, the racquetball gods are smiling on me today. As I said that jokingly, but th th these people actually believe this. And, and, and some of our beliefs, our paganism is, is very similar to this, as I will explain. And, and what's fascinating about this is that now that they are Christians, they are, they are going back to this paganism. So let me explain what this looks like. See, the false teachers were saying this. They were saying, believe, obey, and you'll be saved. That's appeasement. That's paganism. You're trying to, to earn your right standing with God through your obedience. If I do these certain things, if I hit the punch list, then God will accept me. That's what they were teaching. And they were actually saying it's circumcision, ceremonial laws. You've got to do all these things before God will accept you. The Apostle Paul was actually teaching, and this is actually what the gospel says. It's cover to cover in the Bible. It's very clear. The Bible says, believe and you'll be saved, and then you'll obey. See, your obedience isn't trying to appease God, it's pleasing to God, because now that you have him and you have his blessing, you wanna honor him and live for him. Make sense? I mean, that's, that's the difference between the gospel. And so what they're doing is that they're going back to this appeasement. They're, they're kind of jumping through the hoops and kind of working through these things to somehow win God's approval, you see, the first one, the false teachers were teaching, believe, obey, and you'll be saved is about earning or achieving, and believe and be saved and you'll obey is about embracing and accepting, and it, and it transforms our lives. You see, God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. And I hear people say this all the time, okay, I'm going to really try hard, I'm going to get my life together, I've been doing a lot of things I shouldn't be doing, and so I'm going I'm to really start working really hard. Well, that's, what do you, Why? That's appeasement. Come to him. Give your life to him. Understand what he offers you. Understand the grace of God. It will blow you away. And then you will be able to respond to that with your life and your love to him. See, a changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. And the changed life is about pleasing God. That's, that's the gospel. Now, this is how this kind of works its way out in our life. We typically will take one of two paths, and sometimes we go back and forth between these two paths, two ways to save yourself. When you look at all the mess that we're in on this planet Earth, all human problems are ultimately symptoms, and our separation from God is the cause. And our separation from God, which is the cause, really comes from the fact that we have rebelled against God. We've sinned against God, and so what we typically do to remedy the problem is that we go two different paths that we try to save ourselves. One is self-discovery. The second one is moral conformity. Self-discovery, we see that in verse 8. That's where their life before Christ enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And this is a kind of a form of breaking all the rules or making up your own rules. It's trying to find happiness in creation rather than the creator. It's follow your heart. Be true to yourself. 
Oh, by the way, that's what we studied this whole summer in the book of Judges. Isn't that what they were doing? There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's, that's American culture. Self-discovery. And then there's the moral conformity. Look at verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So the first one is about breaking all the rules or making up your own rules. The second one is keeping all the rules, being very, very, very good. This is trying to find happiness through the creator as a means to an end. Now, what's fascinating about these two is that uh, the best example of this is found in, in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, and it's, it's often called the prodigal son, singular. I prefer to call it the prodigal sons, plural, because both of these, both of these sons are prodigal, but actually the word prodigal means extravagant, and it'd be better called it much better called the prodigal father because he's the one that's unbelievably gracious and extravagant in his love for his two sons. And so which one of the sons would represent self-discovery? Anybody? Don't everybody answer once? The younger? How many are thinking younger son? Okay, younger son, self-discovery. Yeah. I mean, he's thinking in his mind, if I could just get out of this this hellhole, hanging out with my dad. If he could just give me all of my inheritance. Man, I'm gonna really start living now. And where does he find himself in this self-discovery? Where everybody finds themselves when they try to find satisfaction in creation as opposed to the creator. He found himself where, anybody? Pig pen. And fortunately, there was a time when he came to his senses and he begins to think to himself, we talked about it last week, he begins to think to himself, what's fascinating about this, little did he know what was awaiting him. What was awaiting him? Ring, shoes on his feet, robe on his back, butchered fattened calf, there was a party. But he was thinking, you know, here he still had, you know, he, he still had the position of a, of a son if he would repent and come back home and to the father. And yet he had the mindset of a hired servant because he's thinking, wow, my, my dad's hired servants are doing better than what I'm doing right now. And so what happened when he came back? The Bible says that the father saw him from a distance and did what? Ran to him. And he smothered him with kisses and he brought him into the house and they threw a party. Now, where was the elder brother? The elder brother would represent more of that moral conformity. So he's the self-discovery guy and he comes home because he realized, wait a minute, what am I thinking? This is insane to think that somehow there's something in creation, maybe, maybe unlike this, you know, earth, wind, and fire, you know, praying for, to all those gods, but it was more about sex and money and, and success and all these things. And that's what we oftentimes pursue. We try to fill this void inside of us with all of those things, and it's not gonna happen. It, it's not gonna happen because only God can satisfy the deepest longing in our soul. But here's the moral conformity, son, and they're throwing a party, and he doesn't wanna go into the party. He's ticked off. How dare this younger son go out and spend the inheritance. Now, I've often thought about what the story would be like if instead of the father seeing the younger son coming home, but the elder son saw him first and went out to meet him, how do you think he would have met him? He would have beat the living daylights out of him and chased him back out to wild living and prostitutes. That's exactly what he would have done. And you know what? We live in a day and time when there are churches, if, if there's a... If, if you're in a church that's not reaching 
younger brothers, it's probably because you have too many elder brothers in that church that are running them off. And they're probably getting to them before they get to the Father and understand the Father's love. Do you understand that? That's really important to understand. And so the Father goes out and pleads with the elder brother during the party. It's amazing, his love for both of the sons. He goes out and says, come on, your brother's home. He's home, let's celebrate. And what does he say? He says, no way, are you kidding me? You never did this for me, dad. You never threw me a party. And the dad says something, almost, it's just, it's profound. And it hit me so hard years ago because I, I, I never did the, the self-discovery gig. I did the moral conformity. I was the elder brother. And I, I tried to somehow earn my right standing with God. And therefore, God, you, you owe me, God. And, um, and it was amazing because when the father responds to him and he says, you never did this for me, the father responds with such love. And he says, son, I'm always with you and all that I have is yours. Boom. Oh, my goodness. That was convicting. Wait a minute. You see, when you, when you, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, give your life to God, you get God. You have him. You have all the resources of heaven. He didn't know that. He, he had left the father without leaving the farm. And so there's two ways that we tend, typically, I mean, we, we typically respond to this brokenness of our world and trying to fix things up. Self-discovery, moral conformity, both thought that the deepest and most enduring satisfaction was from the Father, his wealth, not in the Father, his love. And so this enslaves us, that's the next fill in the blank, both enslave you because they are counterfeit gods, they're, they're idolatry. Did you notice in verses eight and nine, he uses the word enslaved and slaves. Verse eight, he says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse nine, whose slaves do you want to be once more? Now, how many know what, when you, when you uh, know the f top 10 list, the 10 commandments, what's number one of the top 10 lists, 10 commandments list? Just yell it out to me. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice that there's, there's only two options? There's not a third option? You, get, you guys saw that, didn't you? It, he doesn't say, you shall have no other gods before me. Or, by the way, if you don't want to have a god, then you might not have a god. No, no, he says you're going to have a god. You'll either serve the true and living god, or immediately that vacuum will be filled up with a counterfeit god. Because, see, in understanding that, everyone has to live for something. Even atheists are living for something. There's something that's really, really important to them, gives them meaning and purpose in life. Everyone has to live for something, and whatever that something is becomes the Lord or the God of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. And so you either believe in the true God of the Bible, the Creator, or you, or you become a slave to something you treat as a God but really isn't in creation. And so you, you try, to, try to find that happiness and you'll try to, you try to use God, you use God, his resources as the, as the younger son did. By the way, everything you have has been given to you by God whether you realize that or not. The Bible makes that very clear. Whether you even want to, you know, even acknowledge his existence. Your, the very breath you breathe, your heart beats because there is a God and he gives you that. But then we try to, try to appease God and come that route and try to somehow earn our right standing with him. So we, we, we kind of, sometimes we can go back and forth between the two. Self-discovery, moral conformity. 
And it's all idolatry. An idol, an idol is anything more important to you than God. It is anything you love, trust, and hope in more than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And it's very often not a, not a bad thing. It's not like robbing banks. I don't think anybody here would rob a bank this next week. But it, but it's, it can be something that's very good. Like a bank account that becomes too important to us. That's idolatry. It's not oftentimes something that's bad. It's something that's very good that has become a God thing in our life, that it controls our lives. And so how does this enslavement happen as it relates to self-discovery? If we put our greatest hope in, in our bank account, in gaining wealth, then, then it will control us when we seek it. It will disappoint us when, when we get it because it's not enough to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart, only God is. And, and it will never be enough. And when you lose it, it will devastate you because you have put, put all your eggs in that one basket and it'll rock your world. I see that happen all the time. People aren't just sorrowful about things that they've lost. They're in despair and some are even suicidal because they have put their hope and their heart into this and, and they're devastated. So that's how self-discovery, you know, that enslavement. What about moral conformity, this elder brother? There's an infinite number of ways that we try to save ourselves through good behavior, church attendance, reading our Bible, ministry to others. There's nothing wrong with any of those. The problem is, is why? The question would be, why are you here today? Why, why are we studying the Bible today? Is it to appease God? Maybe he'll take the heat off in my life and life will go better? Or is it here because you have his blessing and you want to honor him and you want to live for his glory? And, and there's nothing more important. In fact, through spiritual disciplines, you're increasing your capacity to experience more of what he offers you. And so there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. And this is what I found about, uh, because I was, I was right here, this is what I found about these elder brothers, this moral conformity, is that oftentimes there is bitterness when life doesn't go well because if, if you live a good life, you deserve a good life. I, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I, I dropped money in the box, and this is what happened to me? How dare you, God? God, you owe me. See, that's, that's paganism. You don't understand what you have in God. You're using God as a means to an end. That's, that's elder brother kind of attitude, bitterness when life doesn't go well. There's also an attitude of superiority. Holier than thou, self-righteous, very critical, condemning of others. I mean, of course God's gonna accept me. Look how good I am. And then there's the joyless, fear-motivated compliance to rules. And then, of course, there's no assurance of the Father's love because I don't know how much work I need to do to get his love. I don't know where the mark is. Where's the cutoff point? Now, what's fascinating about these two, self-discovery and moral conformity, is that the idolatry and slavery of moral conformity is more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of self-discovery. Why is that? Because typically, the self-discovery person knows he's far from God. The, when he was in the pig pen, he knew he was a long ways from the father and from the farm. But the elder brother didn't know he was a long ways from God. He had left the father without leaving the farm. Uh, he didn't realize that he was a long ways from God. And what's fascinating about that story is that it ends with a cliffhanger. We never know whether or not the elder brother ever comes into the party. It just kind of ends. It just kind of ends. And, and the younger brother made it home, safe and secure. 
And so that's, that's the bondage, that's the enslavement that those two bring. We're trying to sort through our problems. But here's the remedy, the cure. The cure is number two. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, about Jesus being our Savior and Lord. So religion is about us being our own Savior and Lord, trying to save ourselves through self-discovery, moral conformity. They actually enslave us. But when we realize that, we come to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus being our Savior and Lord. Verse 9, he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God. The word there, know, to know God and to be known by God, that's your first fill in the blank under number two, to know God, is the Greek word ginosko, and it is more than intellectual awareness. To know someone is to enter into personal relationship with, with him or her. See, it's one thing to know that pumpkin pie smothered with whipped cream is sweet. Now that we've hit the fall, everything's pumpkin. I love it. And uh, my wife made two pumpkin pies this last week and yesterday. Yes, I had a big old huge piece of pumpkin pie. And I just didn't look at it and smother it with whipped cream. I got into it. I ate it. So it's one thing to know that pumpkin pie smothered with whipped cream is sweet. It's altogether another to have that sweetness on your tongue and to experience it. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you can know that God is good. You can know that God loves you. You can know that God is holy. It's all together, listen to me, it's all together another to know it deep in your heart where it transforms your life. Where you're living in the reality of that. You're interacting with God. You have a relationship with God. It is not... It is not just knowing something about God, but knowing the joy of his presence and the warmth of his embrace. Nothing will complete you like that. Nothing compares to that. There's nothing, there's nothing in creation that compares to the love of God the Father and experiencing it deep in your heart, but, but he says, he goes on, he, he says, hey, wait, 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 but now that you, you have come to know God, oh, wait, 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 time out, better yet, this is more important, he knows you, he knows you, he wasn't lost, you know, when people say, I found God, it's like, oh, okay, I understand, uh, I think, but uh, you didn't find him, it's not God was lost, you were lost, he found you, he came after you, he pursued you. You only acknowledged him because he was already initiating it. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you with an, with an overwhelming love. You're not here by accident. You know that? You're here this morning by divine design to hear the very words that I'm speaking to you right now. Because God loves you. He's pursuing you. He's coming after you because he, had, he loves you. And he sacrificed his son for you. I mean, when you, when you begin to understand that, and uh, I mean, here's, here's the definition. You hear me say this a lot around here. It's not, see, the gospel, listen to me. Understand this. The gospel is not good advice and what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him through his son, Jesus Christ. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. I mean, that's amazing. That's crazy. I just can't ever get over that. And it never gets old. It's amazing. It's just breathtaking. It's beautiful. This is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion of our world today. 
He knows me. In fact, David is so overwhelmed with this knowledge in Psalm 8. He says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. God, you are, you are transcendent and yet you are imminent. You're powerful and yet you're, you're personal. When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You, you think thoughts about me, God? And not only do you think thoughts about me, but you care about me? You come after me? You want me to have relationship with you? Yeah, Psalm 139, if you get a chance maybe tonight just to, just to reflect on and think through Psalm 139, it's just, it's, it's stunning. In that psalm, it talks about how God knows everything about me. He's omniscient. It tells us also about how God is always there for me. He's omnipresent. And then it also says, really explains it. It uses very poetic language that God is powerfully at work in my life. He's omnipotent. But then it also says that God is madly in love with me. In fact, it uses this poetic language. It says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. What is the, how, what is the vastness of the sum of them? You guys know? They outnumber the what? The grains of sand on the seashore? Oh my goodness. You think... That many thoughts about me and you care about me and you love me and you pursue me and, and it's more than just knowing that in your head, it's letting it take hold of your life. We are recipients of a preemptive love that changes everything. We love him because why? He first loved us. You guys kind of whispered that, because he loves us. He loves us. Why, why, do, why do we love him? Because why? He loves us. He loves us. He loves me. He pursues me. And by the way, if you're struggling with this love for God right now, you're just kind of like, ah, whatever. And you're struggling with a love for one another, it's because you don't know that and you're not living in the reality of that and you need to come back to it. Maybe this would be a good day to come back to it and bask in the reality of his love for you and, and pray, God, make it real to my heart. Make it, make it more real to my heart unlike I've ever experienced before. I was trying to think of what would be the best way to really understand this, uh, this idea between religion and a relationship with God. And so here's what I was thinking. I was, I was thinking, how would my wife Nancy feel if I said to her, I want you to understand something. I'm not going to commit adultery. And the reason is because number seven on the Ten Commandments says not not to do that. And so I'm not going to do that. Though I want to. And I think about it all the time. But I'm not going to. How do you think she would feel? Do you think that she would want a relationship like that with me? I'm living by the, the law. Living by the rules. But what if I said this to her? What if I said, when you open your eyes in the morning, the sun rises. When you close your eyes at night, the stars shine. When you walk into a room, I can't see anyone other than you. I will love you forever and always. And you never have to worry about me ever having eyes for anyone else. I only have eyes for you. And I will always love you. I am head over heels in love with you. I am madly in love with you. How do you think she would respond to that? 
Which, which one would you want to be married to? The first one, more of the religious one, or the more of the relationship one? Well, the second one, of course. See, that's the difference between religion and a relationship with God. By the way, when the Bible talks about, about our relationship with him, he uses a lot of imagery, and one of it is, is marriage relationship. And the Bible starts with a marriage, and it ends with a, with a wedding and a marriage. Did you know that? And so the marriage is to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ because this is where we're all headed because Christ is the groom and the church is the bride and he is madly in love with us and he gave his life for us. And when that gets a hold of you and goes deep into your heart, oh my goodness, how could you not respond but give your life back to him? See, that's the difference between religion and a relationship with God. And, and in fact, religion is about rules. Obey God and he'll accept you. It's appeasement, it's paganism, but the gospel is about relationship. He accepts you, therefore you'll obey him. It's pleasing God. You never have to wonder what you have to do to get God's acceptance, affection, and affirmation. Because Jesus purchased your acceptance and your affirmation and affection on the cross once for all, once for all. It's a done deal. It's not based on your performance. It's based on what he did for us. And so you enter into it and enjoy it. And it transforms your life. In fact, Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, it would so transform your life, he says in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, that you will even love your enemies some of us know enemies. We have enemies in our own home, in our own lives. It's crazy. And he said that love will so take a hold of your life that you will be able to love your enemies with that kind of love. Now, very quickly, let's knock out the rest of this because we've got a baptism party we're going to do uh, in just a few moments and just celebrate that. But, so what does that look like in our lives? So religion versus the gospel, what it looks like in our relationship with others. Here we go. Gospel-centered people, ministries, number one, seek to balance truth with love. And that's what we see verses 12 through 20 as we kind of work through that. Seek to balance truth and love. Look at verse 12. He says, brothers... I entreat you, I beg you, I plead with you. There's love, and then he gives you some truth. He says, become as I am. That the truth is, follow me, follow my example as I follow Christ. And then he says, for I also have become as you are. That's love. So you got this, this balance between love and, love and truth. In other words, he identified with them and loved and cared for them deeply. He radically identified, and yet he was radically different from these people. And then in verse 13, he says, you know it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. So he's, he's very transparent, just showing his life to them and showing, hey, you know what? I struggle in so many ways, and yet he's putting the gospel on display. Here's what's fascinating about it is that Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. And that's what he's doing. He's showing them that with the gospel, you can suffer well, and you can put on display who Christ is and what he's done for us. And that's what certainly they were attracted to. And then verses uh, 14 and 15, they were very open and receptive. They even, said, they even said that they would be willing to gouge out their eyes for him. But this is, I think, the lesson we need to understand. People have to be able to look into our hearts and lives and see how we handle trauma, disappointments, interruptions, and conflict in our relationships. They need to be able to see whether Christ is real and how the gospel affects our lives day to day. That's what he's teaching. Now, religion, on the other hand, falls into a couple different categories. There's a legalistic form, and you can go to churches that are very legalistic, and it's all truth and, and no love. And they're very divisive. 
And then you got another extreme, and it's more of the liberal form, and that's churches that are all love and no truth. And they're very deceptive. And yet he's balancing this, this love and truth. And number two, gospel-centered people and ministries don't tell people what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. What they need to hear, verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Is what he's saying. Your doctor doesn't become your enemy just because he diagnosed your cancer. And that's what he's saying here. So we need to be able to handle the truth. Number three, do not need, gospel-centered people in ministries do not need to have fans who are emotionally dependent on them because they seek to glorify God, assured of salvation through faith in him. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, out of the gospel of grace, that you may make much of them. They are telling you what you want to hear. They are tickling your ears, pandering to you in order to get your loyalty. They are flattering you so that you will flatter them. By the way, you need to be aware of churches and ministries and people that do that. Why are they saying this to me? Are they speaking the truth to me? Are they challenging me with the truth? Here's the next one. It really comes down to motivation. They motivate, gospel-centered people in ministries motivate people out of a fear, not out of fear and pride, but a heart captivated by the gospel. That's what he's saying in verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's good that people encourage you as long as you're heading in the right direction and not only when I'm, I'm present with you. So fear and pride can restrain the heart and that's what we need to be aware of. When someone's trying to motivate you to be closer to Christ, is it fear, pride, or is it a heart smitten by who Jesus is and what he's done? That's the question. Fear and pride can restrain the heart. Only love can transform the heart. Number five, gospel-centered people in ministries desperately want people to follow and be dependent upon Christ as, as they do. Verses 19 and 20. My little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Now let me read this quote and then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna do these baptisms. Here's the quote. You're gonna have to take this quote with you. Think about it throughout the day, maybe later on this week and then also go through the growing notes. It's a pretty heavy quote. The gospel frees us from the need for people's approval and adoration so that we can confront and anger the people we love if that is what is best for them. And although it does not always work, work, this is the only kind of communication that really changes people. If you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger, you won't ever tell them the truth they need to hear. If, on the other hand, you tell a person the truth they need, but with harshness and not with the agony of a lover, they won't listen to you. But if you speak the truth with lots of love, evident at the same time, there is a great chance that what you say will penetrate penetrate the heart and heal. Gospel-based ministry or person is marked by loving honesty, not spin, image, and flattery. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the impact it has on our life. As you have spoken to us today, continue to transform our lives. With your heads bowed, eyes closed, this would be a great, great time for you to commit your life to Jesus. If you've never done that and you, you're beginning to maybe get a glimpse of the, of the amazing grace of God this morning, maybe for the first time, this would be a great opportunity to, uh, to commit your life to him. You might say, well, how do I do that? Well, you, you've, it's ABCs, easy as ABC. A, acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. All of us have tried either one or both of these paths, self-discovery or moral conformity. 
And we need to run into his arms of love and understand what he's done for us. You acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and you confess him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you are a Christian this morning. I would encourage you to renew that commitment to him and you do it like this. God, we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our our trying to earn our right standing with you. We acknowledge even trying to find something in creation that would satisfy you, satisfy us apart from you. And so, God, we believe that Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. It's, it's finished. And we have all that we need in you. And so, God, we confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Father God, thank you for your indispensable and costly love of Christ for us on the cross, giving us eternal life, a, a quantity and a quality of life that is incomparable. Thank you for this great miracle that we're about to witness of those who are making this public declaration of their faith in you through water baptism. I pray your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.